Jesse, long time no see. Yeah, I, I was worried about you. I saw some scary shit online. Yeah, so we went on vacation for a couple of weeks. Did you actually do anything on this on this uh, hiatus? You were on vacation? I thought this was like a retreat. Yeah, thanks for that, Jesse. Um, did you do some trust falls by yourself? Well, I thought you were behind me, but then I had to go to the then I had to go to the <laughs> hospital. So <laughs> that explains why your nose is so big. <laughs> so you fucking you, but then I looked online and you're lost on the side of a mountain having a panic attack, and you had to like you had to kill someone and eat them. I didn't. The story wasn't entirely clear to me. Yeah, that's basically what happened. So I went for a hike and this is a, a local mountain. I go there fairly often, but I just sort of saw this trail off to the side and I thought like, oh, I'll go up this trail to just see what, see what it is. And it wasn't marked or anything. It looked like it might be a dried creek bed, but I thought like this, you know, this is a trail. So I, I, I just started going up and it was, it was really steep, like much steeper than anything I would, I would hike on my own. But for some reason, I just, I kept going and I was with Moose and, uh, kept going up and up and up. And then it got to a, a, like a rock face. And by that point, I'd been hiking up this trail for about 45 minutes. And it was so steep that I didn't think there was any way I was going to be able to go down. And so I was left with a, with a, a conundrum. Do I try to like slide on my ass down this, this, the side of this mountain? Cause there's no fucking way I'm going to be able to go down. Or do I just climb? And so I proceeded to, I'm like, wearing like jeans. This was not supposed to be a rock climbing expedition. So I proceeded to climb up the side of this rock. And I'm desperately afraid of heights. Like I have panic attacks on bridges and on uh, uh, what are those things called? Ferris wheels. I've had like legitimate panic attacks on Ferris wheels. So heights are not something that I'm at all comfortable with. But I just like didn't really have another option. So I was sweating profusely, like drip, and I'm not a big sweater. So this was like sweat, like dripping off of my face. I was, uh, was very close to tears. And I, uh, and I, I just did it because I didn't really have any other choice. I called Moose. He just scrambles, scrambles up. He's totally fine. And then I didn't know what to do. I didn't know if there was going to be more rock faces I would have to climb up. I honestly, I was like having this sort of like, I got to get to a place where I can get cell service just in case I have to call a fucking rescue team to help me off of this mountain. And so I just kept going up and just following this trail, just going up and up and up. And I finally, I got to the top of this mountain and when I got to the top, there was a group of people there who, they weren't just sitting around drinking beer. They had actually hauled a cooler up with them. A cooler. They had hauled a fucking cooler up this mountain (laughs) that I was I literally thought that I was going to die on. Like, what's up, bro? Yeah, exactly. And then I looked at my at my phone, and I had been hiking for all of one hour. I'd been gone for one hour. Wow. Is it yeah. is it accurate or fair to say that the uh, only thing that kept you going was thinking about the podcast? It was Moose. It was just thinking about what Moose would do if I if I fell to my death. He'd he'd have to go live in, live in the woods with a pack of wolves or something. Moose must have been very confused because he's sensing you're anxious, but from his point of view, it's just the best day ever. He just gets to to run around on a mountain. He wasn't confused at all. He was like a little fucking billy goat up there. It was very <laughs> maddening. I did at one point I was on all fours because I figured Moose, he was like having such an easy time doing this. I figured if I lowered my center of gravity, it would work a little bit better. Um and so I was literally on all fours trying to climb up this fucking mountain. Sorry you went through that, but I'm glad you made it. Thank you. 
I did survive. The podcast will uh, live another day. What is the name of this podcast that will live another day? This is Blocked and Reported, and I am a still-breathing Katie Herzog. I am also still-breathing. I'm Jesse Single. And Katie, today we are going to talk about a couple of things according to these notes I have. Yes, a lot has happened since we last spoke. First of all, there was Noodlegate, which we're not going to get into, but Noodlegate happened. Yes, there was Noodlegate. Was that the same as... That was Dumpling Gate. Yes. Gate and Dumpling Gate were the same gate. Right. It was the same gate. It was basically a woman complained on Twitter that a white woman whose name was Pippa or Pippi. It was made – that name was made up. It, it was seems, like yeah. like if you made up a fake British name, you didn't have enough time to do your homework. Pippa McLondon Bridge. Yeah. yeah Dame Pippa um, wrote a book on uh, on noodles and dumplings and a Filipino woman took great umbrage with this and tweeted about it and then got horribly ratioed and was the character of the day for about 24 hours. Not only that, but then, <laughs> then after she got ratioed, she popped back up to say white supremacists were attacking her and her therapy cost $130 an hour so people should donate to her i wonder how much money she made off of that maybe she and pippi were in league together and they're gonna split the earnings that would be such a good business model so she was the character of the day only to be replaced after maybe 24 hours 48 hours with nathan j robinson the editor-in-chief of current affairs we're not going to talk about nathan j robinson on this podcast but we will be talking about him and the saga at current affairs on our patreon episode so if you would like to hear that join us at patreon.com slash blocked and reported yes this uh you're not gonna want to miss this one this is like an amazing story it just combines so many of the worst people on on the internet. And uh, yes, it's a giant dumpster fire we're looking forward to discussing. First, on this episode, we're going to talk a little bit about a new sort of independent uh, sports substack, which might sound not up our alley, but it's you'll you'll understand why when you hear this interview I did with a buddy of mine about what's going on in sports journalism right now. We're also going to talk about some very disturbing allegations against a Broadway star and the uh, journalistic shortcuts, I would argue, the Daily Beast has taken in reporting them. But first, Katie... There's a huge story that we haven't mentioned yet that that we would be remiss in not mentioning. We already mentioned it, uh, Dumpling Gate. <laughs> there is a national uh, crisis right now, and it, it stems from Afghanistan, and that crisis is the really bad tweets people are doing about Afghanistan. <laughs> Look, this is only a crisis if you, unlike me, are not a member of the Taliban. <laughs> So I was uh, I was watching what was going on and I felt helpless. I felt like I should do something. The something I chose to do was to say on Twitter, hey, what's the worst tweet you've seen about Afghanistan? <laughs> you are such an ally to the Afghani people, especially women and children. I read about this New York Times correspondent who uh, left Afghanistan. He got out safely. Then he went back just to help more people escape. I was like, he and I are sort of doing the same thing when it comes down to it. He's raising awareness of like the plight of these people trapped in the airport or by the airport. I'm raising awareness of the bad tweets. Katie, should I just read some of these tweets? Please do. They were so fucking good. Thank you to everyone who sent one in. I think a lot of uh, Bar Pod listeners did. I'm not going to attach names to these, although one of them is sort of a um, a fan favorite. All right. Whatever you think of the Taliban, let me just pause there to say that any sentence that starts, whatever you think of the Taliban, uh, whatever you think of the Taliban, their seemingly imminent victory is a historic defeat of colonialism and imperialism. <laughs> this should be the main narrative of media around the world rather than the red herrings about women's rights, etc. that we are being sold. Women's rights, etc. That's how I feel about women's rights, etc. <laughs> 
This is another one. It is wild watching white Americans freak out about, quote, Muslim terrorists, end quote, while they buy hot dogs and ice cream for white terrorists here, parentheses, themselves. What? What? I love the little parentheses, but just in case you didn't get what I'm saying, I'm calling all of you terrorists. One more. Uh, so DM25 is some EU, progressive EU organization. On the day liberal neocon imperialism was defeated once and for all, DM25's thoughts are with the women of Afghanistan. Our solidarity probably means little to them, but it is what we can offer for the time being. Hang in there, sisters. <laughs> sisters, that sounds a little bit transphobic. This was a pretty transphobic comment. I just love like – I mean, this part is generally not funny, but when you think about what a woman living under the Taliban has to deal with and then seeing a tweet, hang in there, sisters. <laughs> you know, I've seen those pictures floating around of, of uh, the Taliban eating ice cream, and I think they look like really nice guys. Great guys. Uh, who are we to judge? Can I read you my favorite Afghanistan tweet? Please do. Oh, it's deleted. It's deleted. Okay. This was Marianne Williamson. Did you see this one? No, but I'm intrigued. Oh my God. It was so good. She tweeted something like, we need your help in Afghanistan. And then she, please do everything that you can do. And then she tagged, it was like Matt Taibbi, Jimmy Dore, Crystal Ball, Sagar, whatever his last name. Brianna Joy Gray, <laughs> just this like roster of leftist podcasters as though like we're going to like deploy Matt Taibbi and Brianna Gay to Afghanistan to fix the problem. That's awesome. We're going to get our best takes over there immediately. <laughs> exactly. That's what Afghanistan needs. Better takes. I loved it because to me, this was a vision of what the Williamson cabinet could oh have been. God, yeah. We could have had Matt Taibbi as head of the NSA. I don't know. It would have been great. Uh, yeah, there were some really good tweets. And that is uh, because we have no knowledge of Afghanistan itself. That's going to be the extent of our coverage of this topic. Good luck to everyone involved. Yep. Best of luck. Take care. Katie, what do you know about the Broadway actress Alice Ripley? I had never heard of her until this week. So basically nothing. The two of us, if you could combine our total cultural knowledge and just write down everything you know, could we fill one sheet of paper? About Broadway? Absolutely not. No, about it, like combined everything. I could do like three paragraphs about 90s ska punk. You could do – what do you have? You, you have nothing. Weed. I know some weed names. That's true. Um, so, okay. Uh, she's a, She was in a play called Next to Normal, which earned 11 Tony Award nominations, started in 2009, Pulitzer Prize for Drama. Alice Ripley herself won the Tony Award for Best Actress in a Musical. Very beloved actress, uh, now in her 50s, I believe. Recently, a fan posted a TikTok accusing Alice of having groomed her. And did you see this TikTok? Because he sent it to me, yes. So I'm just going to read. These, these words are splashed on the screen. This is 25-year-old uh, Brie Lynn, who states in her profile or in the post that, that she has autism. Uh, a song called Happier by Sophia, which is like sort of an angry power ballad is playing. So it's just her lip syncing with all these photos flashing behind her, mostly of Alice Ripley. Here's what she says via text. This is all via text. She's just lip syncing. Growing up is realizing I was groomed by a Tony Award-winning Broadway actress. Our first conversation was about a photo of you in lingerie. I was 12, and when I was 13, you told me that the first time we locked eyes, you felt like the world stopped. You were having constant inappropriate interactions with me, all while talking shit about me behind my back. And one of your insane fans tried to kill me. You were the only adult in the state that could have helped me, and you left me there. And I've spent 10 years trying to convince myself it didn't happen, that I was in the wrong. 
You separated me from all the friends I had made, and you made me hate the Broadway community I once loved. And I never told anyone, but I now know that I was never the problem because I was a kid. Breland then goes on to suggest people try to get her next show canceled. Um, Alice Ripley did self-cancel that show, so her her next performance is canceled. What's your... What's your reaction to this video? Because I found it to be just like a strange sort of artifact of our time. Yeah. Every time someone says the word grooming, I can't help but I just have this mental image of someone like someone's hair being French braided. Um, (laughs) I assume that's not what she was talking about. But she's not clear that there was any sort of sexual contact in this. She doesn't allege that at all. So what she seems to be describing to me is it sounds like an inappropriate relationship or a weird relationship, but I don't see how the word grooming, unless there is some sort of romantic or sexual contact, I don't see how the word grooming really applies here. Yeah, I also noticed that like some of these allegations are pretty serious. If if a fan of Ripley's tried to kill Brie and then Brie asked Ripley for help and they were close enough that Ripley should help her and then it, it makes it sound like Ripley left her in a position of mortal danger, which is a really serious accusation. Do we have any details about how this this murder attempt took place? Was it like uh, poisoning? Was it, <laughs> was it a gun? Did she try to push her off a building? I mean, as, as we'll see, this is like sort of it. This is people immediately like page six and other outlets wrote up this TikTok video without getting any of the details. The one other thing I want to say about the video before moving on to this Daily Beast article is aesthetically, it like perfectly captures the moment because Brie is putting on this big defiant performance. This is what it means, I think, to be a victim in 2021. You're saying, look at me, pay attention to me, look at this horrible shit I went through. Like when we talk about a culture of victimhood, I feel like this video really captures that idea because it's like you're making yourself the star of this new production you're kicking off. This should be a Broadway show. <laughs> the time I was groomed by Alice Ripley. Yeah, the Alice Ripley story. So um here, let's just – I'm not going to read too much. I'm just going to link to the Daily Beast article. I'd recommend you all read it so you can see what I'm talking about. Here's just two paragraphs from the Beast about Bree's specific accusations. Bree Lynn says she was brought into Ripley's world after watching her Tony Awards performance in summer of 2009, quickly becoming a fan of the musical. She added Ripley on Facebook when she was 12 and sent her a message about how she was a fan. But she wouldn't meet Ripley in person until that October, a few months after her 13th birthday when she attended a next-to-normal performance in New York City. Seeing that performance, where she gave Ripley a bouquet of flowers at Curtain Call, altered the course of the next few years of her life. Brie Lynn says she began attending more and more shows, sometimes going to lunch with Ripley and other fans, and even attended performances of Next to Normal while it was on tour in various cities. Breland also shared photos of herself as a teen with Ripley, sometimes in her dressing room and once at a group lunch. It sounds like Breland began quickly becoming fixated on Alice Ripley and followed her to different cities to see her in performances, no? It does. And this, that in itself sounds a little bit creepy to me, but this is also something that a super fan would do. Yeah. I mean, yes, but. I do think if someone is a, claims that someone abused him but is also a super fan who would follow them around to different cities like that should put an onus on them to provide details. Unfortunately, one more quote, after Breland shared her story on TikTok, she claimed she went to take screenshots of some of the messages she sent with Ripley. But when she checked the same messages on Wednesday, Ripley's replies seemed to have been unsent. So you and I did an experiment on Facebook. You can unsend messages, but it just happens to be that Bree did not get screenshots that would prove – Alice had sent uh, inappropriate messages. I, I just feel like if you're going to accuse someone of something like that, 
You should probably have evidence, right? Yeah, even if she didn't have screenshots, she didn't describe them, right? No, she didn't really describe anything in detail. Um, also, the Daily Beast didn't even ask about the murder thing, which is like this crazy allegation in this viral TikTok video. We don't hear a word from it in the Daily Beast, which like, that's not good journalism, both because we should know what happens and because it would uh, bear on this woman's credibility if she said this person didn't care that I tried to get murdered and then can't provide details about that, right? Yes, so the the article goes on. I, I'm not going to read more from it, but there are these three other people who subsequently came forward and talked to the Beast. And it's the same thing over and over and over. These are girls who were very much Alice Ripley super fans. And they sort of would hang out after the show in the alley. They would try to like – ingratiate themselves to her it sounds like she did reciprocate sometimes on facebook and and sending them messages i think there's a chance that she like got too close to some of her fans the only in-person allegation is that someone hung out with her in her dressing room and she like kissed them uh which so i got in touch with someone who is close with alice and they say that alice just says she has never kissed a woman in anything of a sexual way she is like so she's not gay she's not gay she she says that or this person said about her that she's like a hugger and a kisser in terms of like greeting people and saying goodbye to them that kind of reminds me of the uh juno diaz allegation where do you remember this yeah so he someone accused a writer accused juno diaz of kissing her he oddly issued an apology um, about this and other allegations against him. And then later it turned out that there were witnesses to this alleged kiss. And he was like in a group of people. He kissed a bunch of them on the cheek. I don't even remember that part. I remember this other allegation that he had like uh, gone off on a woman in a bookstore and then someone had a recording and he hadn't. So so he this was how someone interpreted a kiss on the cheek. Right, right. And you can say if someone says a kiss, you just sort of uh, – you just assume that it's a, you know, a, a mouth kiss, a, a throat, a deep – you know what I mean? You just this, – yeah. this, So this one was – this one uh, this one was a mouth kiss, ah. but the girl herself says that they didn't try to – she didn't try to make out or anything. It was just a kiss on the mouth. Okay. I mean that's – Which is – I mean I find it still a little weird in context, but I would want to know more before – if we're going to You want video. That's what career. you want. You want video. I want, I want a video of these two women kissing. Is that too much to ask? <laughs> Unfortunately, OnlyFans is no longer doing pornography, so you're going to have to find it somewhere else. <laughs> that was the other big story we missed. But um, so, so yes, the only – there's a lot of these women – saying that they fell in love with Alice or they got obsessed with Alice and then they felt emotionally manipulated by her. In many cases, the quote-unquote emotional manipulation is things like she didn't respond to my messages anymore or I thought I was competing with the other super fans. It is very, very unclear what happened. Now, there are there is this instance where Alice apparently hung out with this woman in San Diego and San Francisco and the kiss in the dressing room, although I'd want to know more details there. And, and was this a child or a, or a woman? No, someone of legal age, but very young, okay. especially for Alice, but of legal age. And then there was – um, at one point, she like sent someone a care package at school or multiple care packages. So like in a couple instances, it sounds like she had developed uh, you know, relationships with, with these young people, which – probably a bad idea about whether any of this is grooming um the elephant in the room here is of the four accusers uh you know one is, is on the autism spectrum which doesn't necessarily mean anything but i think does make it harder to read social cues one of them says she has borderline personality disorder which literally causes you to have unhealthy relationships with people to swing wildly between loving them and hating them yet another of these fans was hospitalized for reasons we don't know. And I guess what it comes down to is like, if we're going to do this big story claiming this woman traumatized these innocent kids, I just think the, um, 
the journalistic standard should the threshold should be pretty high before you surface these claims. No, sure. And what's the original accuser? What's her name? That one is Bree. Okay, so Bree. So I so Bree started a Twitter account. I looked at her Twitter account, and she she made the point. She said, if this were a man. People would be taking this really seriously. It's seriously. It seems like people are taking it seriously, but I I do think that that is is sort of a good point. If this were a man who were hanging out with twelve year old girls, we would definitely look at it sideways. But at the same time, these parasocial relationships between artists, between podcasters, even for some goddamn reason, they do exist. And as a person, as a public person, as an artist, in this case, as an actor, you have to decide how much you're going to give to your fans. And that can come back. If you decide to give a lot to your fans, that can clearly come back and bite you in the ass. Even I, who, uh, no one knows who I am relative to, to Alice Ripley. People have sent me Facebook messages in situations of like near crisis and they've told me really personal shit and it's uncomfortable, but they, they sort of think we're friends. And I, I don't, I, I, it, parasocial relationships absolutely get weird. And I think in the, in the theater world, I think everything's just like a little more intense, a little more huggy and kissy. Dramatic. Yes, dramatic. And, and also the other thing is you mentioned the photos. The vast majority of these photos are like they would literally hang out in the alleyway to see her when she leaves and then get a selfie with her. That does right. not prove anything. If they're following her around the country, getting different photos with her, that's not like – now a couple of the photos were more – they were just like hanging out. But it just – one point that the the person I talked to who knows Alice made is that the Beast used this language like she would invite them to shows. She would invite them to shows to pay for a ticket and attend the, sh- attend the show. That's like if we invite – if we get to do a live show, if we invite people to our live show, is that creepy or is that maintaining a fan relationship? It's actually extortion, Jesse. <laughs> I'm just going to go to a, uh, a Brooklyn middle school and just invite people to come to our show. <laughs> see, Just see what happens. <laughs> yeah, totally. So has Alice Ripley uh, – has she released any statement about these allegations? Yeah, she released like one statement basically saying they were false. She also – Unfortunately, she did an Instagram post with like a piece of trash on her shoe that was like uh, a piece of trash trying to mar my perfect world. And everyone (laughs) interpreted that to mean that she's calling the accuser accusers a piece of trash. She subsequently edited them. Um, She hasn't really responded. And I I think this is a thing in journalism that we've seen in some other questionable Me Too stories where allegations drop. The person – who is accused is completely overwhelmed and is not in a position to respond to them. And during that four or five or 20 days, outlets run with the story, ask them for comment, and they don't give comment because they're in a crisis themselves. So I think there's always this way in which the story gets out ahead of the person who's being accused and, and we don't get to hear their side. But I've, I can think of several cases off the top of my head where the person didn't respond and then Maybe even a year later, they come back with like screenshots showing that this wasn't, didn't happen as described. So I'm, that the Daily Beast would run this long piece with basically no screenshots. There's one screenshot and it's ambiguous. Screenshots of text messages, I mean, is, is not good journalism. Is this the same reporter who did the Donald McNeil reporting? (laughs) No, that was, oh God, that was also really bad. This, but this does continue to happen with Me Too cases and also with these allegations of racism within various workplaces where there's the initial reporting. The damage is done by that point. The allegation is enough to hurt somebody's career, possibly get them fired or lose various opportunities. 
And then there's no follow-up reporting, or if there is follow-up reporting, the follow-up reporting actually exonerates the person, like the Al Franken case, which I think it was Jane Mayer re-reported after he had already, you know, resigned from Congress. And it turns out that most of these allegations look like they were, were either bullshit or they were just like vastly out of context. Um, but, and it's a great, I think this is a great avenue for reporters, you know, go back and re-report these things that, that everybody thought that we knew the actual story because the initial journalism is so fucking bad. Let me just give an example of how bad this journalism got. Cause I think this is like shockingly bad. Uh, this is about an accuser named Liz. Time stamped Facebook photos reviewed by the Daily Beast show Liz pictured with Ripley multiple times, as well as in St. Louis following the next to normal tour as well as frequent social media interactions on Ripley's since-deleted Facebook page. The Daily Beast also reviewed a bizarre video of Ripley that she posted online, where she referred to Liz by her first name while striking a flirtatious tone in lingerie. That sounds pretty bad, right? She put on lingerie and she posted a video mentioning this girl by name. That That does sound bad, right? Yeah, it's definitely weird. So what the friend of Ripley told me... I could tell his tone was a bit exasperated, even though it was over email. If you go to Ripley's YouTube page at around 2009, she was posting all these bizarre short videos with this close-in intimate feel. Not only that, but what the Daily Beast doesn't tell you is this video had intermission in the title. She was recording this during intermission at her show. She's wearing lingerie, but she's wearing this big coat like over it. That's because she's getting her clothes steamed during intermission. So the... So uh, all that detail, you, you read this paragraph, you would think, wow, she, she slipped on lingerie and then she posted a message to this fan. It's like, no, A, she did a lot of weird YouTube videos. B, she wasn't just wearing this out of nowhere. She was wearing it with a coat over it because that was what she was wearing for the show. So I just think all that context makes things seem a lot less menacing and none of that found its way into the Daily Beast piece. And they actually saw this video? I mean, they, they, I, I think they initially embedded it. They did an edited version where they um, edited out the woman's first name. I mean, I'll post a link to it in the show notes. Who cares? It's just her first name. But yeah, they clearly must have known that it was from intermission and they just seemed to intentionally leave that fact out, which to me doesn't resolve this, but it casts it in a much different light. You know, this is just this is another example of how reporters on this beat, on the Me Too beat, have really become activists. And this idea, like, believe women, believe victims, believe children, whatever. It's these reporters are taking that to heart and not doing their basic their their, their actual jobs, which are to, to find out the truth of the matter. Yeah, but it's not just Me Too journalism. Sure. I mean, it's like any area that's like socially hot button issues. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I I anticipate that. The sense I got from Ripley's friend is like these were like multiple phones ago. She might not be able to dig up the messages. I, you know, I do think if she deleted some, that's questionable. I just think the journalistic threshold for reporting something like this and and potentially fucking over someone's re- someone's reputation career so badly. You know, people on TikTok are going to do what people on TikTok do. Like people who are disturbed are going to do what disturbed people do. It's journalist jobs to see how strong the evidence is. And I don't think the Daily Beast did its job here. And that I think that's a trend, like you're saying. Journalists should start taking classes in like criminal defense or something just to learn how to do like basic due diligence. Yeah, man. I just, just the fuzziness of saying like, yeah, there were repeated, there were multiple photos of them on Facebook without clarifying like, I, I think what you mean, reporter, is that this person followed the star around and got a selfie with them in a million different alleyways. If anything, that, that, 
is creepier on behalf of the fan, although I'm not going to call a 14 year old creepy, but still like that, that's just, there's all these details left out and they always point in the same direction. So we will see what happens with this. I, I found this very disturbing to unfold from the first TikTok video. Also, why is Daily Beast, the Daily Beast not asking about this murder? Like if you're going to talk to the TikToker, how could you possibly leave that out just to repeat myself? It's definitely the most interesting part of the allegations. What murder? Let's hear about it. What, what do you think the odds are that it's exactly as Bree said, that a fan tried to literally kill her and Alice Ripley literally refused to help her? Here's what I'm picturing. There's a railroad track. The fan is tied <laughs> to the railroad track. The other fan. This is the, the famous railroad track that goes straight exactly. down Broadway, right? The other fan is driving a train straight towards the, straight towards the super fan. Alice Ripley has a button and she can either. <laughs> that's what happened. There we go. It's a, <laughs> uh, this is a weird story. Do better journalists. Do, do better. better. Uh, all right. We, uh, we will be back in a minute. As the longest-running magazine in the world, The Spectator believes that journalism must be witty and insightful, that ideas should be discussed without the constant threat of cancellation. The Spectator never confuses the serious with the dull. It isn't right-wing or left-wing. It believes in challenging, informing, and entertaining readers. Since its founding in 1828, its mission has been to convey intelligence, not ideology. The Spectator is more cocktail party, less political party. As a publication, it believes that life is bigger than politics, which is why it covers art, culture, food, wine, travel, and life all around. Sign up today and you'll receive three free months of both the print and digital magazine, plus a free Spectator hat. Just use offer code BARPOD at checkout to redeem the special offer just for listeners of this podcast. Go to spectatorworld.com slash special offer and use offer code BARPOD. I love The Spectator because it is dedicated to wit, strong reasoning, and brilliant writing. And even if you disagree with the politics, you are guaranteed to be entertained. The amazing contributors include Christopher Buckley, PGA Rourke, Julie Bindle, Christopher Caldwell, Lionel Shriver, Douglas Murray, Toby Young, Slava Zizek, <laughs> Roger Scruton, Scruton, and Rod Little. One of those guys is dead. Uh, I'm not sure which. Roger Scruton. <laughs> from the Biden administration to book reviews, from cancel culture to, to cultural cuisine, The Spectator will entertain you from cover to cover. So sign up today to get three months of The Spectator for free, plus a free Spectator hat at spectatorworld.com slash special offer. Use offer code BARPOD at checkout. That's spectatorworld.com slash special offer, offer code BARPOD. All right, Jesse, it is time once again to make some love connections. It is. But I guess – so we have like an administrative announcement, right? Okay. So the BarPod personal service, we don't know if anybody has actually found love yet. We're getting a lot of ads. We're also getting a lot of responses to those ads. I checked the email today and one person thinks that he's being catfished. So once again, we do not vet any of these ads. If you think you are being catfished, cease contact. Yeah, and, and just to be clear here, we take this seriously. So for example, if you go on a date as a result of this service and you get murdered, we will sue your family for ruining our reputation because you were too sloppy and you got murdered. I think we should be upfront about that. I, that's totally fair, yes. This is legally binding as well. We're probably going to wrap up this feature shortly um, for various reasons. 
the main one being that, of course, we don't want to get sued. So if you do want to place an ad, join the Patreon at patreon.com slash blocked and reported and get that ad to us by, let's say, the end of the month. We're going to wrap this up. Hopefully you'll find love soon. And if not, you're going to have to just get back on Tinder. Yeah, we're going to we're going to wrap this up just like you should if you go on a date with someone you meet on the service. We're going to pull out just like we did in Afghanistan. All right, Jesse, do you want to read the first one? The Disappearing Bell, 32-year-old Los Angeles lesbian who enjoys hiking, cycling, travel, good food, reading, seeking a woman who wants to drink the other half of my beer. Uh, I have a bachelor's degree, a rent-controlled apartment, am gender-critical, and more online than I'd like. Let's be conformist, monogamous disappointment to the queer community together, allergic to cats and vegans. Tiny Lady, Barpod listener and former actor and New, and New Yorker turned K-12 teacher and Trump-loving, Gadsden flag-flapping organ logging community seeks intelligent city-dwelling man with heterodox views to save me from being the sort of Oregonian who casually wears flannel and hiking boots to the store. You can refer to me as Tiny Fantastic when my milkshake brings all the boys to the yard. We should be clear. When she says tiny, she says four foot ten and three quarter inches tall. But by the power vested in me by the listeners, I'm upgrading her to four foot eleven. She's the same height as Danny DeVito. <laughs> Is that true? I happened to look that up yesterday. Yes, he's four ten. He has some sort of uh, he has some sort of disease. Uh, okay. Hi, uh, Central Jersey exists. Nice Jewish guy, late twenties in Central Jersey, who attends services frequently, synagogue for the goys, enjoys board games and hiking. Doesn't curse or smoke, has center-left politics, seeks nice Jewish girl. Thank you. How the fuck do we have listeners who don't swear? I find that very surprising. <sighs> I'm, I would be shocked if we have any nice Jewish girl listeners, too. <laughs> Non-extinct lesbian. 26-year-old lesbian in southeastern Pennsylvania who's outdoorsy, conscientious, curious, and sick of pretension. I'm looking for another woman who's also relatively established and stable in her life and wants to share its simple pleasures with someone. If you're up for hikes and taking the scenic route through life, please reach out. Tired of Tinder in Toronto. Good alliteration. 24-year-old male in Toronto who likes hiking on a first date, so you know I'm problematic. I'm an avid reader and music enthusiast looking to meet an open-minded and intellectually curious woman. So many hikers. Yeah, we got a lot of hikers. Healthy crew. Maybe we should do uh, bar pod meetups at the trail. Oh my god, we all just overnight hike together. (laughs) (laughs) That's a great idea. We can all listen to our podcast separately on our phones. Uh, That's it for now. Remember that this is... uh, this feature, frankly, is endangered. We really could be wrapping it up soon. If you want to get your personals in, become a patron at www.patreon.com slash blocked and reported. Thank God you put that www in there. Is there an HTTP colon backslash? Oh, uh, I'm sorry. I forgot. Yeah. Make sure, HTTPS to make sure the encryption is whatever. Also, Katie, what's the, um, if you want to respond, what do you, what's the email bar pod personals? Right. So if you want to respond to these ads, Email us to say who you are looking for in the email so I can know who to forward to at, uh, what's the address? Barpodpersonals at gmail.com. So if you want to file a personal ad with us, join us on Patreon, do it through the Patreon messaging service. And if you want to respond to an ad, email barpodpersonals at gmail.com. It really couldn't be more. Use one platform to submit and then email Katie and maybe if she gets to it, she'll connect you via email to the other person who originally sent it via – it's just a seamless <laughs> We system. are nothing but professionals here. If we invade Afghanistan again, they should have us in charge of like the rebuild. Well, you know, we might not have done any worse than Joe Biden. Um, all right. So other other housekeeping, you can always reach us at blockedreportedpodcast at gmail.com. We got the subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash blockedreported. And then uh, merch, barpod.org. Our our gross revenue this quarter is going to be $8 trillion, mostly the tote bags. Pretty good. Yeah, we can uh, use that to rebuild Afghanistan. 
There we go. Uh, and then what am I missing? As mentioned, we have a Patreon. If you join us at patreon.com slash reported, not only can you get access to personal ads, you will get three extra episodes of this very podcast every month, along with an array of other goodies, including Ask Me Anythings, bi-monthly meetups, discounts on merch. We did discounts on merch, right? I think so. I think so. <laughs> Maybe discounts on merch. Early access to live shows if we ever do one. Yeah. Lots of good shit. Join us. Barpod. Oh, wait, no. Patreon.org. Wait, fuck. Patreon.com slash blocked and reported. That's Taliban.af slash slash blocked and reported. Do you think they have a good website? They must, right? What else do you think that all that, that American tax dollars have gone to? Oh, God. Um, okay, so that's it for housekeeping, right? I hope so. I'm very unfocused today. All right, yeah, if we forgot something important, just let us know. Katie... You're a huge sports fan, right? I do go watch retirees play pickleball in my neighborhood every day. So, yes, I am. There we go. Uh, I have a buddy named Ethan Strauss. He's a very, very accomplished sports writer. Uh, he's written for ESPN, The Athletic. Uh, I've talked to him a lot about the stuff that's gone on in his corner of the world because it, it mirrors the stuff in non-sports journalism in so many ways. And you, you add to that equation this very interesting thing of, of what it's like to cover pro athletes and what the culture of the NBA and the NFL and these other outlets are. So we decided to, to, to have me interview him and to play it for you guys because he's leaving the athletic. He's leaving a pretty plush job in the sports world that hundreds if not thousands of people would kill for to strike out on his own on Substack. And um, I, I just thought it'd be worth talking about that because he's an interesting guy in an interesting place. Uh, so yeah, Katie, anything we should add before we throw to the interview? So I wasn't sure who Ethan Strauss was when you pitched this to me. I agreed to do it because it was less work for me. Thank you, Jesse. Um, but after listening to the interview, I realized I did recognize his voice and his name because he got into some fight with Kevin Durant. And you talk about it briefly in the show, but I will you just like remind me of what happened? Yeah, so so apparently uh, Kevin Durant was not happy with how Ethan Strauss covered his free agency. Uh, this is when he left the Golden State Warriors and ended up with the Brooklyn Nets. So uh, as you'll hear, he was not happy with Ethan. You got to do Ethan Strauss who come in here and <clears throat> just give his whole opinion on stuff and make it seem like it's coming from me. And he just walk around here, don't talk to nobody, just walk in here and survey and then write something like that and – now y'all piling on me because I don't want to talk to y'all about that. All right, Jesse, let's go to the interview. Ethan Strauss, welcome to Blocked Shots and Reported, America's number one basketball podcast. <laughs> you know, I can't run away from it. I can't run away from my roots as uh, – it sounds so weird to say basketball journalist, Jesse. It doesn't sound like a thing. It sounds silly. It sounds ridiculous. I'm trying to be – I'm trying to transcend, Jesse. That's why I'm here. I'm trying not to be tied down by the sports. You're talking to someone whose professional job is to talk about internet sociopaths with my friend Katie every week. So I don't, don't talk to me about jobs that don't seem real. We made up the, the idea of the fake job. Well, I am humbled uh, to be invited on and I'm delighted to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast. Thank you. And, uh, yeah, we, we've, um, we got lunch, oh God, 2019, 2018 in the Bay Area. And, uh, we, we've been discussing media stuff for a long time. It feels like. Yeah, we were supposed to hang out right before shit hit the fan uh, for the pandemic. You were gonna, you're gonna come over to my place. I was gonna teach you how to how to watch basketball. I was gonna build a proper. <laughs> 
proper pointers on how to do that. Finally, I was going to learn about the uh, the inherent efficiency of the three point shot. <laughs> uh, we're going to lose half my audience with, with sports jokes. So, one thing that's been interesting is it seems like a lot of the stuff going on uh, in your world has been going on in my world, but it's just there's something different about it because sports writing and the business of sports is is its own. Beast. So, I mean, as we told everyone, the sort of precipitating event here is you are leaving the athletic, uh, to go solo to start on Substack. What led you to this point? It's a good question because I was treated very well at the athletic. I didn't have, uh, some of the mistreatment that you've seen in these other places that, that Katie, I think, has suffered. Ari Weiss, uh, another example where people on Slack are bullying. No, I was I was treated well. People were nice to me, probably nicer than they should be. Uh, very cordial. Yeah, you're kind yeah. you're kind of a dick, man. Honestly, I don't. Yeah, know. <laughs> no, really, I should have been more corrected. I wouldn't have gotten this big head and struck out on my own. So. I wanted to do it just because I saw so many issues that didn't necessarily fit the exact sports template in the way uh, you're supposed to do with a sports publication, and yet had this overlapping into sports character. And I found sports to be particularly uh, fascinating in this moment, this moment where a uh, successor ideology is running roughshod over everything, as, as Wesley Yang calls it, successor ideology. Others call it wokeness. I think sports in a way uh, is a little bit different in how it's impacted. If you would allow me just to preamble on my, my kind of thinking on that. Yeah. Uh, I, I think what sports is suffering from is something that I'll call existence dissonance uh it, it sells a rented form of masculinity to the masses uh but now it wants to be seen in some places as fighting the patriarchy and <laughs> i just don't know how that's really going to work out i mean athletics is a very masculinized field uh dominating opponents isn't the only way to be a man and doing so isn't exclusively the province of men but the act itself is something that really appeals to male audiences and every nation on earth men are more into sports than women are you know you can't find me an exception um and yet all this obviousness is increasingly impossible to say out loud in professional circles and jesse thank god uh thank you you know, for inviting me on this highly unprofessional, in this highly <laughs> unprofessional podcast where we can actually talk about it. Uh, so I just think that there are a lot of thoughts connected to that, and it is a fascinating incongruity to track. So give me just let, let's get more specific in your day to day job as a journalist who who covers this world. What are the sorts of things that you find or found when you weren't on Substack that you couldn't say or were that harder were harder to say despite being from your perspective obviously true? Ah, well, that's a good question. I do think that in some cases you could say it. Uh, it's just a matter of are you putting your colleagues in a spot? Uh, would it be an act of Congress to get to get it through? And it just seemed like it was so much easier to pivot in this direction and be able to say it. And also, there are so many connected relationships in sports. Uh, a lot of people don't know the power that CAA, Creative Arts Agency, has uh, over sports because they represent so much of uh, sports media. They represent uh, – it's the, the agency, the Hollywood agency for people who don't follow all that stuff. But they also represent a majority of the main journalists at ESPN NBA, uh, a shitload of star and superstar NBA players, 
also coaches. Um, and so that's one thing that you have to be careful of when making certain observations about the industry. And then, of course, you have the sneaker behemoths that are part of it. And so you can really be putting your colleagues in a spot if you start rattling these particular cages. And to me, it just seemed easier. And that's even before we get to the culturally fraught aspects of all of this. But if you want me to sort of zero in on sort of one insight in particular, let's say, let's say, Jesse, that I'm, I'm sort of looking at Nike. Um, <laughs> hypothetically. <laughs> hypothetically slash that's what I'm doing. Um, you know, I, I want to sort of just be free to look at what's inspiring them to make these really cringy ads that they're making when they used to make high art back in the nineties, probably all the way up until the great awakening period of 2013. And it's just so much easier for me to do that and to look at what the hell's going on there if I'm out of my own. Well, let's talk about that because you, you shared a couple, um, drafts of posts you're working on and one of them was about nike i thought it was hilarious it basically compares like you said the ads they made in the 90s to these present ones that um inevitably get these horrible dislike to like ratios on youtube when they're posted what has changed in sort of the message or the tone of these ads and what does that tell us yeah, certain Nike ads are, are literally uh, raging against the patriarchy. Uh, a recent one for uh, women, the, the women's basketball team, a great uh, team with a lot of success, uh, the American women's basketball team. Today I have a presentation on dynasties. But I refuse to talk about the ancient history and drama. That's just the patriarchy. Instead, I'm going to talk about a dynasty that I actually look up to. An all-women dynasty. Women of color. Gay women. Women who fight for social justice. Women with a jump shot. A dynasty that makes your favorite men's basketball, football, and baseball teams look like amateurs. A dynasty with firebreds. A dynasty with sick style. A dynasty with crazy dismisses pretty much all of human history by saying that's just the patriarchy in favor of celebrating uh, the U.S. women. I don't know why they feel the need to denigrate one to celebrate the other but it is part of this this tone that they've taken and the ads are not good they feel like propaganda and i think what's so difficult for them is that they are a company that has been built on masculinity in many ways as we are saying sports is a highly masculinized field uh michael jordan is maybe more essential to building nike than steve jobs was to building apple and he's the ultimate just killer alpha dog kind of character and that appeals to people it, it really does and there's this weird aspect where there are ugly there there are ugly components to hyper masculinity to a high testosterone place like a like an nba locker room um but people are also drawn to it and it's not it's not just how the sausage gets made so to speak uh but fans love some of the ugly elements, right? You know, there was this documentary on Michael Jordan's Bulls that aired last year called The Last Dance, and it garnered massive viewership. People were shocked by the amount of viewership uh, that, that it drew. And what people were drawn to and what the ensuing memes drew off of was indeed Michael Jordan's alpha dog cruelty, yeah. how vicious he was to his teammates, how he wanted to humiliate the opponents. And it reminds of uh, in American Hustle, uh, Jennifer Lawrence's character was talking about how historically the best perfumes in the world, they're all laced with something nasty. And well, th that's this, that's sports. And if you make it your goal to sanitize sports or to force sports into a space where its aim is to sanitize the world, 
uh, you're going to go too far and you're going to undermine the whole venture. And so I think that's what we're seeing with these Nike ads. And you're seeing it in general across platforms at some of these companies that are trying to digest this ideology that is running cross purposes uh, at the thing that made them successful. So is your basic argument that like um – like so, okay. So take me. I, I'm obviously a total soy boy. Everyone knows that. I do. I, I tune into the Boston Celtics and the New England Patriots because I want to see large athletic men slam into each other and try to best one another. <laughs> I have I have trouble seeing what that has to do with social justice, and it does tap into the extent I have like a a, a little trace of a hypermasculine side. That you're saying that if you try to squeeze that into the social justice box and be like. What if NBA, but also fighting the patriarchy, that that's just sort of an, an ill-fitting suit? It's a total incongruity. And I do think to what you're saying, I mean, I, I am coming from a similar place, you know, I, I, I too am a nebbishy nerd and I'm a nebbishy nerd though, who worked as an NBA beat writer for, for years. And for those who don't know, a beat writer is uh, a media member who follows the team to every game. And for the Warrior in a Warriors season, I might do a hundred games because they would go to the finals year after year. So in that case, I'm bouncing from locker room to locker room. And you know, you remember there's that famous This American Life episode from many years ago where the staffers measure their testosterone and, <laughs> and the big joke of it is how low T the public radio journalists are. Yeah. And who knows why that is, but I think it's in keeping with the spaces I was used to existing in before I had this job. And now I'm in NBA locker rooms and you get hit with it. You know, it's, it's a, a high testosterone energy. You feel it. It's the adrenaline. It's the loudness. It's the confrontation, the ball busting. I had multiple very large humans threaten to beat the shit out of me and they weren't joking. It, it's a different world. And Kevin, think- Kevin Durant disliked you, right? Yeah, Kevin Durant uh, fairly publicly disliked me, though I would more attribute that to disliking what I said about him. But uh, overall, same difference. He did not threaten me, by the way. So that, that just shows you either how common an experience that is for the beat writer or what a gigantic asshole I am and maybe a bit of both. But um, that's that's that space. It's it's a different world. And I think people would assume that it's so different because as I, I heard Neil Brennan, uh, the co-creator of The Chappelle Show, once uh, kind of remarked to Blake Griffin, who's an NBA star, uh, that it's comprised of black millionaires uh, who are young. And that's so weird. But But to me, the main difference between that and the professional class world I was used to was just how – high T masculinized it was. It was a completely different universe. And so that gives me some insight into how you really can't square it with the sort of messaging that appeals to the indoor cats of the professional class. But I guess one counterpoint to that is that so in the NBA, the, the, most of the NBA's sort of social justice efforts have gone to fighting police violence. And that does seem to be something that's been driven by the players themselves, right? Yes, yes. In many instances, yes. I think that is definitely a front in the culture war uh, that the NBA players feel either more compelled uh, to wage and also more comfortable in doing so. Yes, indeed. The sense I got from reading one of your drafts was that sort of mainstream professional sports writing and sports business writing is like not quite covering up, but almost covering up the fact that a, the NBA has like a severe ratings problem and B there's a pretty strong case. It has to do with some of the, the messaging stuff you're talking about. Do I have that right? 
You have that right. And I think that's in a way now we're shifting from the players to the viewers, right? Um, so yes, players, I think, uh, they're more comfortable with that kind of messaging. Um, and I think just to go over, to go over this whole topic, to keep people, uh, informed on it about a decade ago, uh, the NBA had twice as many television viewers on network TV as it has today. Um, so that's a precipitous drop and it did not track when people go, Oh, you know, the shift, to cord cutting, blah, 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 blah. All the various copes that, that one might use if you're working for the NBA, it, it dropped at a level that was uh, far faster and far greater than that these other sports had. Actually, what was interesting is that the first precipitous drop that I noticed was following a controversy in which a general manager, uh, it's the guy who makes all the trades and all that, Daryl Morey. Uh, he was the general manager of the Houston Rockets and he posted a meme, a free Hong Kong meme. Um, and, uh, the nation of China, uh, took great exception to that. Basically kicked the NBA out of China. Uh, it was a very awkward circumstance because NBA players were in China at the time to play preseason games. Didn't know how this would perhaps jeopardize their getting home. And then LeBron James lambasted Daryl Morey. Uh, for exercising his free speech. And I don't think many people thought what LeBron said was good. And that was sort of the first inkling that maybe some of the messaging or something about the NBA was leading to people turning off the channel. But the most precipitous drop occurred during last summer slash fall when the NBA had its bubble playoffs. And not only were the ratings so bad in those playoffs uh, all the way through, but by the time they got to the finals, that finals averaged a third of the viewership of what you would see in 2017, 2016, 2015. So they, it went down by two thirds, even though it had aforementioned superstar LeBron James playing for the Los Angeles Lakers, which is a team, uh, which is a, which is a basketball team. See, I'm trying to do the expository, Jesse, for the people. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> a very famous basketball team that people like a lot and a lot of people watch. So it was a shocking result. And I, I think that. If if you look at the whole scope of things, you're only going to find people connecting the dots between activism. Um, and there was a lot, oh, I should also say that there was a lot of activism in that particular playoffs. The players were wearing social justice jerseys with social justice uh, slogans on the back. It was all very cringe and lame, but everybody in an emperor's new clothes way was afraid to really critique it. Um, and so they had all that going on. Um, the players boycotted at some point because of the uh, Jacob Blake, Jacob Blake shooting. Um, and so there was a lot of that going on and it, it correlates to this precipitous drop. And yet there's this denial among my colleagues in mainstream outlets and outfits that this is even happening or that they're connected. And I just find that to be ridiculous. To me, it's, it's obvious and we can look at social science to eventually prove it, but it's, it's fucking common sense. So I found the denial itself fascinating. I, it, it was such a sort of – it's a tricky, confounded comparison because the, the bubble was basically the situation where the the NBA had to stop a season because of the coronavirus. They wanted to yeah. finish it in some form. So they uh, locked everyone in Disney World basically, yes. all, the, all the good teams <laughs> that were playoff contenders. So it was these – you know, I, I, my team went fair, the Celtics went fairly far. I remember watching these games with my dad. It was this weird, sterile environment where you had images of fans on video rather than fans in the stands. You're saying that, well, that might have had some effect. The overall effect was so large. Yeah. You have to connect it to politics for this exactly. to make sense. Okay. Yeah. For a perfect storm, you need all factors. And I would not deny those factors. I would not deny the weird scheduling, the sterile atmosphere, 
But there's something weird about how certain factors are allowed to be part of the conversation, but other factors are highly taboo, and we are not to talk about them. I mean, uh, and if we talk about all of sports getting hit by this, because I'll mention something like this, and people will go, well, all sports were down in the pandemic. But 22 of the 25 most watched TV broadcasts uh, this year were uh, were sporting events, and none were NBA games. Um, you know, the NBA suffered a fall that was relatively worse, worse in degree, perhaps to being at the level of a difference in kind than the other sports were, were experiencing in viewership. And what I find so ironic about all of this is that my colleagues are in denial about it. But wouldn't it theoretically confirm their priors of the, um, of their general worldview, right? That America is racist. Yes, if you think America is racist, that it's shot through with white supremacy, that it was revealed to us when Donald Trump won that this was the case, that you had this this beast within America that would hate, hate as they hated Barack Obama. And they hated Barack Obama so much that they voted for Donald Trump that they would look at noble black activism and turn off the channel. I mean, that seems to be a fairly logical connection. And yet – it is denied, and I have a theory on why it's denied, but still, it is so strange that it is denied, considering that it would be so easy to square it with the prevailing world. What, what's your theory? Okay, so my theory has a little something to do with uh, Timur Karam, a professor out of Duke. Uh, has written a lot of fascinating things about totalitarian societies. I think one of his objects of interest was how the Soviet Union collapsed so quickly. I mean, uh, we're now talking about that actually more right now because of what's happened in Afghanistan, but nobody in the intelligence community thought the Soviet Union would collapse like that. It happened very fast. And something uh, Quran uh, talks about is this thing called preference falsification where people pretend to believe things that they that they don't believe in order to get along with uh, the totalitarian society and so once things start to shift and some people start speaking their mind and revealing their true preferences a lot of change can happen very quickly and so i think at some level because for whatever reason the broader media, including the sports media, has evolved as a sort of hive mind that sees its job as uh, deprogramming the normies out of their terrible ways and sort of instructing them morally that they almost don't want them to know that they're the majority. They don't want them to know that the majority opinion is indeed the majority opinion because that might shake a lot of things up. That might cause a lot of change to happen very quickly. Do I think they think this consciously? Not necessarily, but I think they they know it on an instinctual level that if they start giving oxygen to this idea that these protests aren't good or uh, that they're actually disrespectful or counterproductive or whatever, that maybe they cannot control – they cannot have this hegemonic control over the conversation that they're having. That's my theory anyway. There's something similar going on in, in other areas of journalism where just like when you look at sort of the ideas that get written about or the columns and editorial pages, um, ideas that are incredibly unpopular in the general public get treated in a sympath- sympathetic light and ideas that are very popular among the general public don't get any, any, uh, airing at all. And it just seems like a, what feels like an increasing wedge, at least when it comes to mainstream journalism between the nation at large's beliefs and, and what 
certain outlets will print, which seems unhealthy, even just pragmatically, it seems like it's just going to drive people to sort of the, the right wing outlets we're supposed to be afraid of. Well, yeah, I think there are two schools of thought with it. One is that you will ultimately just through beating people over the head and punishing them, uh, get them to change their conception of morality and conventional wisdom and that they're just infinitely malleable in that way. But I think uh, my thinking is a little bit more like your thinking, which is that it's going to reach a breaking point. I think it's already hit uh, diminishing returns. And and what I find, I mean, the the other thing about it, um, what's so frustrating is I have these friends, these peers who either they don't see the widespread preference falsification, or if they do, they don't see it as a problem. And in both cases, it's because they agree with the prevailing orthodoxy. And if you agree with the prevailing orthodoxy, you're less likely to notice the underground population of back channelers, as, as Freddie DeBoer called it, right? The back channel where people talk about how they really feel. And, and yet if these peers, these colleagues, if they noticed, what they're often going to think is good. You're scared of speaking honestly because you yeah. feel the consequences. Good. You deserve that. You have bad ideas. Thank God we've evolved past a society that would countenance them. And I find this perspective to be aggravatingly sanctimonious and, and anti-intellectual. Uh, but the real issue I think it's having is this. Shit sucks right now, man. <laughs> like, things aren't good. <laughs> does, does anybody think, I don't know, does anybody think San Francisco, in its attempt to actualize these orthodoxies, is well run right now? This city that's combined being impossibly expensive with also being overrun by squalor, heroin, and theft. I, I just cite that as one example, but 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 overall, I think the best argument for broader progressivism were the cities as an object lesson uh, in improvement yeah. relative to the red areas. And, and pre-Great Awakening, look how they thrived. And sure, they weren't perfect, but they crushed crime and they let a million farmers markets bloom. And, and young people said, you know, I'd rather meet my future spouse in a beautiful beer garden than at an Applebee's or whatever. And so they flocked and red areas turned bluer in and around these urban centers. But now, not only are the cities sideways currently, and, and I could point to the carjackings at the local mall I shop at where there's video of screaming women being dragged out of vehicles by the hair and being thrown. But there are so many examples. But not only do you have this issue uh, that concerns people's personal safety, but just the urban professional workplace right now, it's just this never-ending siege of paranoia over yeah. what you said or how you were interpreted. And it's a drag. So what I'm saying is, yeah, people are scared to speak. And no, it isn't correlating in life getting better. So at a certain juncture, you should hit a point where the dam breaks. Do, do you Are you still pretty well um, sourced up in terms of current NBA players? I think so. I mean, you never know how you are relative to others, but yeah. Because I want to ask you about that because I one of the, one of the frustrating things about um, a lot of mainstream coverage of issues of crime and policing is I, to me like – a lot of very, I'm, I'm overgeneralizing here, but a lot of very commonly held black opinions are sort of erased. I know that's like one of those words, but, but they are. Uh, what I mean is that like black Democrats are on average a little bit more conservative than white ones. And the, the great awakening has swept white Democrats to the left more than black ones. And, and black people for understandable reasons have very nuanced and tortured views on the police that include both 
I feel like the police abuse me, but also the police aren't there for me when I need them. So what I've found in mainstream coverage of these issues is, is you wouldn't what you see printed in like a Times column about abolishing the police does not really reflect mainstream black public opinion. What I'm curious about is within the NBA, particularly this surge of activism, I would imagine the NBA has a lot of players who who are at the median of black public opinion in the country who are like Democrats but fairly conservative. It seems like it's probably like a better time for them to just lay low and not express these opinions, right? Yeah, there's going to be some preference falsification right there, and it's it's harder to get a sense of how people really feel when you're not in a locker room, when everything's online. But it, it reminds me of uh, the study that I'm writing about uh, by by Lisa Mueller at McAllister College uh, that I found fascinating, where she tried to gauge the true opinion of Americans uh, regarding uh, specifically black athletes kneeling for the national anthem, uh, because it's something that gets a ton of positive press. I believe another academic journal said that among newspaper articles, only 3% were critical of uh, Colin Kaepernick doing this. And her theory was that there was a lot of preference falsification on this question of people wanting to seem deferential towards a protest against racism. So she designed a study. And I, and I should just jump in to say that uh, social desirability bias is this really well-established phenomenon in uh, that particularly applies to polling, where if you ask someone something, they'll respond with what they think they're supposed to say. So that's similar to preference falsification. That's what's going on here, you think, right? Yes, yes, that's the thinking. So she designed this uh, this very novel experiment. It's been used before. She didn't invent it, but it's good application. Um, a list experiment, and the way that you do it, you basically uh, give people uh, a, a prompt of "Do you agree with this?" and you'll have a list, and there will be a few that everybody would agree with, and the, then you have the controversial one buried within there, and you can infer once you collect enough. Uh, respondents uh, questions and compare against the control group you can infer what they really feel and it will have different it will give different results than will uh, just a survey where you're asking because a lot of people even if it's a pollster even if they don't know them as we're talking about we live in a very paranoid interconnected time uh, so people <laughs> yeah. watch and so that's and so that's a thing so so in this system instead of saying uh do you think kneeling during the flag is disrespectful? Yes or no? That's nestled within like 10 other items and you're asked to just give the number of items you agree with? Yes. Fewer okay. than 10, but yes, that's the general, that's the general idea. That's a really, yeah. it's a clever idea. Yeah. It's, I, I did not know about it. I was very impressed upon learning about it. And what she discovered was about a 13% difference. Um, that social desirability bias accounts for, and also that 54% of a representative sample of Americans disapproved of the kneeling. Now, that was interesting. But what was also interesting was that black disapproval overall was at 44.7%, which I think is way higher than what people would think. And not only that, I believe... The uh, the difference accounted for by social desirability bias among black respondents, it was huge. I think it might have been 39% off the top of my head. So it, it was funny to me just because I, I, so much of what I conceive of uh, when it comes to social desirability bias is white people not wanting to be thought of as racist. I mean, the movie Get Out 
was effectively about such people, the I would have voted for Obama a third time, that type of person. And that's what I think about. And that's what I think about in terms of who would be the most susceptible to that kind of social pressure. But there's this other dynamic uh, and there's scholarship on it of not wanting to seem like a sellout if if you are black and answering these questions. And so what's interesting is that the pressure um, incentivizes people to go the same way, but it's a very different kind of pressure. And apparently, at least in this particular study, it seemed more pronounced on black people than on white people. I found that fascinating. Yeah. And, and again, I mean, it, it's not that surprising because there are a lot of black people who are patriotic, just like a lot of white people are patriotic. You just, you wouldn't, given who gets a platform and which messages are put out in mainstream outlets, I could see why people would be surprised by that. Yeah. It, it, there, there's an article in uh, current affairs, which maybe I say RIP to. I have no idea, uh, given what, what's been going on there. But there was a really good article by Bertrand Cooper called Who Actually Gets to Create uh, Black Pop Culture uh, that was about this big divide between black media members and the general black populace that it, it's funny. It's almost like a lot of white people just expect black media members to be this proxy and this uh, this window, this representative sample of black America. But they have as much connection to the average black person. The average black media member has as much connection to the average black person as the average white media member has to the average white person. Yeah, exactly. So if you just do that math, you know that there's a big disconnect in both instances. I just think listeners should be grateful that they have uh, Jesse Single and Ethan Strauss to speak for the true black America for them. Yeah, well, that's what we're here for. You know, it's uh, <laughs> only we can speak as an outsider. Uh, we're like a bunch of uh, how do you say his name to cut to, to Cuckville? That's like to Cuckville. To yes, Cuckville. Cuckville. Yes, it's to Cuckville. That's exactly it. <laughs> uh, anything else you want to tell people about the your new endeavor? What What's the URL of the Substack? It's the House of Strauss Substack. Uh, I would be overjoyed if people subscribe. I think if I can carve out a space doing that, then maybe we'll get more uh, independent-minded people covering sports because, hey, you might think sports is silly. You might think sports is stupid. I, I couldn't really disagree with any of that. But it's also a multi-trillion dollar business. Uh, it's also a culture war flashpoint. So it does matter, even though it is silly. So I think it would be good if we have more smart and critical commentary. So that's what I'm trying to do. And if you're into it, uh, stop on by. There will also be uh, a lot of business insights, Jesse, a lot of business. The world of business uh, in sports is also going to be covered. So, yeah, I'm excited. I'm super excited about it. House of Strauss.substack.com, right? Indeed. It is launching Monday the 23rd. Come one, come all, subscribe away. All right. Well, thank you so much for uh, coming on, Ethan, and uh, we wish you luck with this, and we will, uh, you know, let's do this again sometime. I would love to. Thanks for having me. You guys are doing great stuff. All right. Well, thank you again to Ethan for coming on and uh, houseofstrauss.substack.com. Uh, I, I, the stuff he sent me so far was so good, especially the stuff about the Nike ad. I just, I, that's, I can't get enough of that stuff, so I'm looking forward to reading that. Yeah, this was a super interesting interview. I was sort of mad that it was so interesting because I wanted your solo interview to crash and burn and it did not. I did have one question. Who is this for? Like, who is Nike trying to appeal to by putting out ads about the patriarchy? So I think I actually think there's an easy answer to that, which is, you know, Nike does make a lot of women's shoes. I would imagine it mostly sells to men. Any any shoe store is a women's section. 
Nike probably thinks that this is like what the youth are interested in. Because if you're a Nike executive, your daughter goes to private school, they're yep. reading Robin D'Angelo. So I, I feel like that's like a pretty straightforward explanation, right? Yeah, I think that's true. I also think it's partially for the media because media coverage is so – Oh, my god. Yeah, yeah. It's just What's like, that term? It's like earned earned media where like right. we, we watch these ads either because we're outraged by them or inspired by them. Right. So it's like free, free advertising. You, uh, you make something that gets attention and then the media covers it. And then all of a sudden your brand is everywhere. I do like the idea of like deciding to like compare the WNBA to ancient Greece. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just like who's, who's going to win that match? The other thing I find interesting about this is that, so it's, it sounds from what Ethan said to you, it sounds like a lot of the media cover, a lot of his colleagues, maybe at, at the athletic and everywhere is going in this sort of jo- social justice direction. But you also have outlets like Barstool Sports, which are sort of the opposite of the SJW that are doing immensely well. So from just a monetary perspective, from a business perspective, it doesn't seem to make any sense to take the woke turn. Yeah. And I think Ethan's going to do really well because he's going to be sort of in the middle and doing actual reporting. Um, I, I think he's going to do really well with this. And it's just another example of a wasted opportunity because there there is money in this sort of like, you know, liberal but skeptical and, and engaging and critical thinking type of thing. Absolutely. It's also funny to consider like you have outlets like Vice that were, you know, anti-woke before woke was in the, in the nomenclature that have pivoted to this very sort of hyper, I don't know, hyper, not even progressive, but just like hyper scoldy uh, attitude. And it seems like they could have made more money and have really could have really like just stuck out if they had kept being the assholes, the old school assholes as opposed to the new new school assholes. Yeah. I mean, I'm skeptical that any of this would allow a big company to avoid collapse. And I think bar school, Barstool Sports is a little bit different because they're just like – I think it's a lot of like fairly low-paid freelancers. But I agree that at the very least, our podcast, the podcast doing better than us, all these subsects, it's all like opposed to the current ties and, and these – Fucking Joe Rogan. People are getting rich off this shit. Yeah. 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 $120 million or whatever he made from Spotify. Oh, last thing. Speaking of Spotify, did you see the apology that Reply All, uh, posted on Twitter yesterday for having an, an, uh, a military recruiting ad? Oh, this is one that you sent me. Yeah. It's literally right. Reply All from its, from its own account apologizes that I guess it was the US, Spotify controls their ads and delivered an army ad. Uh, so Reply All apologized, which, a, it's just like, I mean, whatever. But B, I, the, you can't have your own show dissing your advertisers. That's like what advertising is. That's not going to work well. Well, especially it's the parent company. Yeah, it's. Uh, we'll see how that goes. Anything else, Jesse? No, I think that's it. All right, guys, we're about to record an episode on uh, Nathan J. Robinson and the, and the saga at Current Affairs. So if you want to get that, join us at patreon.com slash reported. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, if any members of the Taliban have been unfairly canceled and want to come on, we'd love to have you. And I'm Katie Herzog. And also remember, nation building shouldn't be done by military, diplomats, or members of the government. It should always be done by podcasters.